If someone asked me how to get better at painting today, right now, I'd tell them this, limit your palette. And the reason? Personal experience. When I limited my palette, it changed everything. I went from being a painter who really stressed out about color mixing to becoming an artist where color is a huge source of my painting joy. And so if you'd like to learn more about what a limited palette is and how to get started with just three colors, I've made a special mini just for you. Getting started with a limited palette is seriously so easy and may be the breakthrough you've been waiting for. So head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash three colors, that's the number three, to grab the mini. That's learntopaintpodcast.com slash three colors. I tell my students a lot of times when I'm finishing off a painting, I'll get it to like that 90% stage and then I'll just get rid of the photograph and just look at the painting and judge it on its own merits. Don't judge it based on how much it looks like the photo. And that's when you stop rendering and become a painter because then you're making decisions based on whether or not it actually benefits your work and not whether or not it looks like that photograph. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. This is the show where we talk with artists about how to get better at painting. This week, my guest is watercolorist and landscape painter, Andy Evenson. Evenson works both in his studio and in plain air. Working in plain air means he paints outside. He loads up his gear and finds a scene and paints out in the elements. And I should note that while we do talk about plain air painting, everything Evenson says is relevant for those of us who are studio painters as well. Evenson explains how to use value studies to problem solve your paintings before you begin. He discusses big shapes and good composition and how to distinguish morning light from evening light, plus a whole lot more. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 12 to get show notes. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter. You'll get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. Here we go. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being with us today. First question, how did you get into painting? With watercolor, I got into it as a kind of a release from medical illustration work. I've just always really loved watercolor painting and worked with that medium a lot in school in illustration courses. So it was just kind of a natural transition for me. Yeah, it just kind of started out as a hobby, doing some fine art instead of working on the computer all the time and blossomed into a full career eventually. Starting out as a hobby means that it's purely for fun. Did that give you freedom? Yes to learn in a way? Definitely. Yeah, that's a great question because the being able to rely on my medical illustration career for income really took a lot of pressure off of me when it came time to painting. Uh, I wasn't in a rush to start having success and get into galleries and get into shows and things. I just I could really take the time to blossom, I guess, and really learn the ropes. And that's what it takes, especially with a medium like watercolor. It's so difficult. I think a lot of people just get frustrated and give up on it if it's not happening for them real fast. But for me, I had a chance to incubate a little bit and kind of work on my craft until I was ready to start entering shows and stuff. So I was very lucky to have a career that I could fall back on. And it was a career that I was working at home. So that allowed me the chance to work with watercolor. When I had a break, I could just kind of step over and paint for a while. And yeah, it all just kind of worked out very well for me. What were some of those frustrations you were running into when you were first starting? numerous things. It was just trying to, you know, learn how to keep the paper wet, the timing of working into washes at the right time. You know, everything that my students struggle with, it's good for them to know that I went through all the same struggles. Watercolor is such a tricky medium, and so much of it is just kind of learning to get those values right and adjusting for how much it lightens as it dries. You know, knowing when you can come in and charge a darker shape into a wash before it's dry, that it just takes practice and time, and there's no substitute for that. Was there a point when you decided, I want to get really good at this? I want to move this out of something that's more of a hobby into more of a a serious focus? Or was it always that for you? No, it wasn't always that way. It's hard to actually pinpoint a certain time when that happened. It just really did kind of morph as I went along in my 
career once I started winning some awards locally and stuff and getting asked to teach. I guess at that time I was kind of like, okay, I want to get my signature membership in AWS and NWS and all that stuff. So I started working towards that. Um, and I guess once I really had that goal was when I was trying to, you know, improve my skills as much as possible. But, you know, you never really get away from that. I mean, I'm always trying to get better all the time. But as far as, you know, I want to make a go of this, I think it was, you know, once I started winning a few awards and, and getting asked to teach, I thought that maybe I could do it as a career instead of medical illustration. So that's when I really started to kind of focus in on things. What did that focus look like? Were you focused on finishing complete paintings or skill development? What were you focused on? I wanted to make sure that I could tackle whatever subject was in front of me. To that end, I started painting outdoors a little more, I think. I started painting in plein air just to get better at choosing subject matter, things that I could handle. You know, when you're painting from photographs, the tendency is to just choose things that are really complicated because it's not going to change on you. And I did paint from photos for a long time, but boy, once I started getting outside painting from plein air, that just forces you to simplify things. And that really made a difference, I think, with my work. To this day, even, I try and paint things that aren't necessarily the pretty scenes that are out there and uh, just trying to get my you know find my own voice is a big part of it you can paint in the same style I guess as somebody else but just trying to find subjects that appeal to you that's a big part of it too trying to come up with a style it's not just the way you paint it's also what you paint so it's just kind of focusing in on things like that so that people could look at a painting of mine and say that looks like one of Andy Evenson's works. You've mentioned before in other places that you definitely had influences coming into painting. How did you use those influences as a guide, but then also break away from them to find your own voice? Yeah, great question. I tended to look towards the British watercolor artists. I knew I wanted to paint the landscape in sort of a realistic yet impressionistic way. And as far as I'm concerned, the British and the Australian painters are the best at that. They always have been. You don't see a lot of that in America. A lot of the watercolors in, in America are more technique driven. There's not a lot of just pure landscape painting. So I just started looking at books of British watercolor art, studying their work and seeing how they did it, really trying to stay focused on the way they simplify the landscape into just a few Real nice, clean washes. That's always kind of been my goal as well. And Trevor Chamberlain in particular has a real nice way of combining soft edges and hard edges in his scenes. And, and he's traveled all over and painted. That's a, going back to what I said before about just trying to be able to tackle whatever subject is in front of you. He did that. And you could still tell it was Trevor's painting, regardless if he was painting in the Cotswolds of England or in Egypt or India or wherever he was at the time. You could just see his style coming through. So I just really started to focus in not so much on colors and subject matter, obviously, but just the way they handle the washes and the shapes and things and trying to work that into my own technique. Is that what sort of encouraged you to get outside and paint plein air? Definitely. Trevor in particular works almost exclusively outdoors. I guess a lot of those guys do. So I kept hearing about it and hearing about it. And finally, I decided I better get out there and didn't really have the time for that when I first started to paint. I was just making time when I could in the house, in my home studio. When I had a break from medical illustration, I would just hop over to the drafting table and paint for a while from photos. But once I started to really get serious about it, it was time to find a good outdoor setup and spend a little bit more time outdoors doing it. And yeah, that's definitely made a difference. How was that transition from a prioritization? Because it's one thing to do it in moments between thoughts percolating at your day job. And it's another thing to like leave the house and go mm -hmm. spend a morning plein air painting. How did that fit into your life? Or how did you make that fit into your life? I just, I had to do it. Just really forced myself outside and made time for it. Being self-employed, that allowed me a lot more chances to do that than other people. I'm well aware of that too, being able to work from home. You know, I work late at night a lot. I'm kind of a night owl. I can stay up till midnight and then get up and paint the next morning and then come back. And when it's flat light, I can hop onto the computer and do some more medical illustration. And then I hop upstairs and I see what it looks like and I can run out again. So you really do have to kind of find that balance in your schedule and stay focused and committed to it. You know, it's really easy to blow things off too, obviously, <laughs> when you're working from home. But I've always wanted to paint. When it's that important to you, you're going to find time to do it. 
how was that first year of plein air painting? How'd that go? Oh, that was a disaster. I mean, it's still a disaster more than half the time. So it's really tough. I rarely even teach plein air workshops anymore for a couple of reasons. I mean, I myself, I'm, I don't consider myself that great at plein air painting. I've gotten to the point where painting in the studio, most everything turns out, not always, but probably 75% of the time. And it's maybe 25% of the time outside. It's just too hard. There's so many factors that go into it. You know, trying to get my message across to students is difficult when I have to focus so much when I paint outside and I, you're trying to talk and explain and answer questions. And it's not easy to do that. And then the students are out there trying to do it. And I find myself becoming a cheerleader, walking around, just trying to keep them, <laughs> keep them focused because, you know, as you walk around, it's amazing how truly difficult it is. And until people get out there, you know, it looks fun and everything. You're outside and good weather and beautiful locations and stuff but if you haven't tried it and gone through those struggles it's definitely an eye-opening experience <laughs> especially with thing with a medium like watercolor like you know you're kind of stuck with your first impression there's not a lot of wiggle room for adjusting on the fly and you, that focus that you need right from the outset of the scene you can use opaque you know gouache to an extent but you know you really kind of have to envision that final painting right from the get-go when you're outside and stay true to that which when you're a beginner, especially, that is a lot, that is a lot to juggle. Yeah. Well, and like I said, not even just for a beginner, for me, I still find myself chasing that light and chasing the scene when I'm out there. It's, it's a really difficult challenge. Hopefully one day it'll get easier. But truthfully, being a, a watercolor artist in the great state of Minnesota, where the weather's terrible more than half the year, that really comes into play too. I just don't have the time all winter, you know, when it's freezing, my oil painting friends are still heading out to paint and I'm kind of relegated to the studio for five months until I, unless I can get out to a warm location somewhere. So that makes it really difficult too, because I mean, you've talked to anybody who's painted any time away from painting, it's amazing how fast you get rusty, studio or plein air. So I paint almost every day now, the majority of the time in the studio still probably. But boy, when you go four months without plein air painting, and then all of a sudden you're out there again, you just feel like you're starting over all the time. Uh, it's, it's really difficult. What do you look for in a scene to paint in plein air? Right away, interesting shapes. Subject matter is pretty irrelevant to me, I think. I've chosen some pretty unusual <laughs> subjects, I've been told. But there's a definite beauty in interesting shapes, you know, when you're going up to an industrial landscape or a farm. Not your typical beauty, but if you can find a way to tackle and handle those beautiful collection of shapes in a painterly way and elevate that ordinary subject into something a little more remarkable. That's the challenge, and that's my goal all the time. I do try and stay away from the cliched, pretty subjects as much as possible. I realize when you're in a plein air event, all the people are there, and they want to buy paintings of that lighthouse or whatever, you know, that landmark that everybody's painting. So that's a little different scenario. But even more so now in the couple of plein air events that I still participate in. I still try and stay true to myself and paint things that are interesting to me because that comes through in the painting too. If you're painting for a sale or something that you're not really excited about, it doesn't really transition well in the final result. But if you're excited about whatever it is you're painting, more often than not, you're going to have a much better painting as a result. What mistakes do you see beginners making when they're plein air painting and choosing a scene? Just tackling too much, usually. That's a big thing. Editing some things down, and not just plein air painting, but even from the photo references they bring in. When it's time to work on their paintings and I'm helping them choose a subject and they pull out their photos, I'm like, good Lord, I wouldn't even try and tackle that. What are you doing? You know. So I end up cropping it down to about an eighth of its original. So see that little area there with that farmhouse? and that? Why do you need a whole field and 9,000 trees? Focus in a little bit. So that's a big thing. And I had the same struggles as they did too when I first started I was painting too much and I just learned to hone in and focus in on fewer stronger simpler shapes the more I paint and that usually ends up with a better result a more interesting painting and just something you can handle why do you think that is why do you think that there is that instinct when you're especially when you're first starting out that like well it's in the photograph so I have to paint it or I see right. it out there I have to paint what what is that I don't know it's it's just a constant struggle to not put that in just because it's in the photograph and I'm still guilty of it too from time to time but that whole editing it's hard to 
leave stuff out you know the, the world is pretty the whole scene is pretty and that there's nothing wrong with all that field and that vast expanse but for painting purposes you don't need all that so finding that balance between their experience of being in that certain area and trying to capture it all in their photograph they're bringing in photos from trips to europe or whatever and yeah that street scene is amazing you know with all those buildings i think that's it's a big part of it too their experiences from being in those places their photograph represents more of a macro view of where they were whereas for painting purposes it's probably better to have a little bit more of a micro view so let's go back into talking about choosing a focal <laughs> point first off just what is a focal point and why is it important to choose one so I might be a little unconventional in my thoughts on this matter, but I even hate that term focal point. Like there's one small little area that's more important than all the rest. I prefer the term area of interest to a focal point, and you can even have more than one area of interest in a painting. I mean, it's there's a lot of times where I'm painting the sky as the star of the show. You know, how do you explain that as a focal point? And I'm painting a landscape because it's this remarkable stormy sky with rain coming down you know what i mean that covers 90 percent of the painting so it's more about the reason why you chose that subject instead of you know i know compositionally yes you still want a little area of interest where you're leading the eye to but it's not always the case but most of the time i guess it is but like i said there's a lot of times in a scene where maybe there's light on a church steeple that's one area of interest and then you have a little gathering of figures down on street level that could be another little area of interest you do want to have some sort of subordination going on around the painting too it's not busy everywhere but i think it's more about just finding why am i choosing to paint this subject is it the quality of light is it the light hitting this one little object is it the group of figures down on the beach a small area or is it the huge sky rainy sky coming in over the water by the beach and then just staying true to that but you would say it's important to know that know what that area of interest is yeah Yes, for sure. Why am I painting this? Because you can just get distracted so quickly, so easily. You know, the old squirrel, the joke. You know, um, all of a sudden something comes running into your painting and you've got to put that in just because it's there. And yeah, the temptation is always there to keep trying to make it better. But it's so important to, to remember, why did I set up to paint here? Why did I choose this photo? And, and then make sure your decision making is all about reinforcing that. You talk about creating a hierarchy in your paintings. What does that look like and why is it important? Going back to what I was saying with the area of interest too, there's some things that are important and, and some things that are not. And that hierarchy and, and staying true to that and making sure that, you know, it's not that the majority of the painting has to be boring with nothing going on, but just making sure you're not having a lot of competition for the, the viewer's attention in your painting. Even though I don't like the term focal point, it's too restrictive, the area of interest. But, you know, I like that the, the viewer's eye kind of travels through the painting, but it should still kind of settle in on the area. So it's make it obvious that they know why you chose to paint this scene. Let them experience it, but give them a path. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a mental checklist that you go through either consciously or unconsciously of when you're deciding a scene to paint of what it needs to have for you to make a good painting out of it? Not really. No, I don't think so. I mean, there's when you look at the work you know, on my website, there's a lot of different subjects tackled, you know, different seasons. One of the benefits of living up here in Minnesota is our world changes drastically every few months, summer to winter to fall, spring. And so I like to tackle a lot of different subjects, just do it in my way of painting. So it's not really like a checklist of what needs to be in the scene really to make a good painting. I just I get a feeling about a scene and whether or not it's the right feeling or not, but for whatever reason, something excites me and I want to paint it. I mean, that's another reason to elaborate on that a little bit, why I chose watercolor as a medium and why I stick with watercolor as a medium. It's such a fast medium to work with, and it really suits my temperament, I guess, my personality. But my excitement level for a scene can wane pretty quickly, I think. You know, to work on a painting for a week it just seems laborious to me. You know, when I'm all jazzed up about a subject, for whatever reason it happens, I can get it down on paper pretty quickly with watercolor and, and move on. You know, I come back from trips with so many photos, and I think, boy, I'm going to be painting England for six months, you know. And then six months later, I'm looking at photos, and it's just, eh, it's not the same. That 
excitement level you had when you were there fades for whatever reason while I'm excited about something uh, try and get it down on paper as quickly as possible and you talk about being able to paint fast but I think there's this idea that being able to paint fast is easy and maybe doesn't take a lot of thinking (laughs) I'm so glad you said that yeah no that's a that's an inverse relationship between how quickly you can paint something and how difficult that is to do to paint fast and that's what I tell my students all the time there's a big difference between loose and sloppy and that was one of my big challenges when I first started to paint because most of the people that I admired painted very loosely and immediately but just to paint fast for the sake of painting fast the results were pretty hideous a lot of the times because you just didn't really know how to tackle that stuff so the plan of attack that you establish by doing a value study is so important that's what really allows you to paint fast but you're not just painting haphazardly you have a goal you have a plan you have big shapes staring you in the face on the value study that you can paint with a nice big brush that makes all the difference in the world because it is difficult anybody can sit and you know if you have some drawing skills you can pick away at a painting to death and try and make it look like that photograph the technical skill is is impressive but to be able to simplify it down and paint rapidly i think is is such a difficult thing to do and that's why you don't see a lot of it backing up just a little bit, what is a value study? So value study is just taking the scene and simplifying it down through one, one color. So you're not getting involved with color shifts or anything. You're just trying to establish the scene in terms of black, white, and gray, basically, is what I'm doing. I'm using Payne's gray paint or neutral tint or something. So taking color completely out of the equation and just establishing what's in light and what's in shadow for the most part initially and then finding those important darks at the end to add some detail but even at the dark stage and that's a big part of the painting process what comes through the dark stage of the value study is it goes back to what I was saying before about staying true to why I chose that subject so when I'm doing the darks on my value study I start at that area of interest and make sure that that's reinforced and reading well first and foremost. And then as I break away from those areas, I find myself putting in less and less detail, even if it's there in the scene in front of me in the photograph or if I'm painting outdoors, but just making sure I'm making a painting and not a rendering. Uh, And that's tough for me because I have an illustration background and I still do some medical illustration, you know, where everything is spelled out and tight. And I mean, that's my tendency. I want to do that. So it's a, it's a real challenge for me to break away from having a painting and not a rendering. I'm sure a lot of my work still end up being renderings. And those, those are the ones I find myself disappointed in. And then I go back to the drawing board and try and repaint it with a little more oomph. Have a glass of wine and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> So what does the focal point, focal area, area of interest? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. What does the area of interest need to have from a value standpoint? Well, the the contrast that really helps if your lighter lights and darkest darks are around that area. So I'm making sure that when I'm putting in my dark shapes first, I'm concentrating not only on the big shapes, but making sure that they're near that focal area initially, just to make sure that that's reading well. Yeah, that's what you can get out of the value study. And then you find yourself just putting in things. This was another thing I didn't do much of until I started doing value studies. When you're just looking at that black and white version and, you know, it's rare that that scene is all set to go and nothing needs to be added or removed or changed. So you find yourself looking at it and saying, hmm, everything is kind of in the across the middle of the paper or something. My bottom, the, the, the painting is just empty. So you just find yourself adding rocks or a shadow or fence posts or a ditch or a stream or just you know, nobody's going to know that that wasn't in the scene, but you're making a better compositional choice. And it's hard to make those decisions, at least for me, right on the painting. You know, you're not sure if it's going to work or not. You don't want to ruin the painting. I'm just trying to stay true to the scene. But when you have that quick little three value study in front of you, it, it's usually a lot more obvious when it needs something because you don't have all the color and detail in there and it's just reduced down to its basic graphic elements at that point. So you find yourself making decisions based on if it's going to help the painting and not just if it's in the scene. So it's a big part of the problem solving that you do before you oh, begin the painting. Yeah, huge. Yep, for sure. We work through a lot of my, a lot of the issues, the potential pitfalls and things are, are 
really come to a head in the value study. Why is it important to figure that out then? I mean, you've been painting for a long time. Why not just do it in the main painting? Yeah, well, I still crash and burn all the time if I don't do it. And I just kick myself, why didn't I do that value study first? You know, you, you would think at some point after doing so many of them and teaching them for so long that I could just look at the scene and know it. But I don't know. I still, it's a nice warm up exercise, I think, too. And that's the reason why I paint my value studies instead of using charcoal or markers or pencils or something. I find myself making a lot of the same marks yeah. and decision making is, you know, it translates a lot more closely to the finished product if you're painting your value studies. So um, it helps in that regard as well. Just kind of practicing painting those trees and you find yourself if the scene has a dark tree branch coming in in the corner or something, does my painting need that or not? And you put it in the value study and decide from there. And if, even if you like it, you've painted it once before then too. And so you've got a little bit better practice when it comes time to putting it on your painting. And those value studies, could you walk us through how you create those in the sense of what are you trying to accomplish with them and then what's happening on the paper? It's just a way of planning my three big steps of the painting. What's going to be in my light wash? And then how am I going to take all that stuff, all that noise in front of me and simplify it down and find lost edges and then go from there and how many details do I need? So when I'm looking at my value study, that first stage, I don't usually finish the value study completely. I squint at the subject and everything that looks light, I leave white paper. Everything else I connect into one big shape. And then when it comes time to doing it on my color painting, even though I'm not painting the big connected shape yet, I'm still using the value study to inform my decisions because I'm looking at that white paper and I'm, then I go to my color one and later on when this dries and I paint around and leave blank areas, what do I need here? I need this color for the sky. I need that color on the, the light on the barn. I need that color on the car or whatever. So I'm just dropping in wet into wet, loose, light, local colors at that stage. So I go back and forth, even at that stage, I'm looking at the value study and looking at that white paper and saying, what's that gonna, gotta be on my painting later? So I just make sure that I can use as few washes as possible to get the results that I want so that your paintings look a little bit more vibrant, a little cleaner, brighter. So yeah, and then once that's dry, then that middle value shape, that's by far the most difficult stage of the painting because that's the first time where you're painting things or objects so your brain goes into separation mode instead of seeing connections you're seeing cars and trees and people and all the stuff so they just kind of all the white gaps start appearing and hard edges and so with a medium like watercolor that's so fluid and all those beautiful passages you get with lost edges that's where the uh, beneficial part of the, the value studies comes in because you're painting that shape literally i just copy that shape on top of that first light wash on my color painting only now i have to instead of just using one big puddle of middle value gray i'm changing the the colors and losing edges and and adjusting the value slightly but then i have got this big nice loose wet connected start to my painting and at that point you can go crazy you know then you can work on it for another hour or, or a week after you've got that depending on how much detail you want in your painting i try to finish in another hour top but even if you want a more detailed painting having that nice start underneath it with uh, with watercolor i think really helps what does that big shape give you? Why is it important to create a big cohesive value shape? You know, you have to remember your painting needs to read well from a distance. Okay, you're, you're working on your painting and you're right on top of it. You know, you're a foot away and you're even leaning in sometimes. So your, your face is an inch away <laughs> from your reference photo trying to decide what something is. But when people are viewing your painting, they're, they're looking at it from, you know, six feet away, 10 feet away. And it's not all those little broken up shapes that make sense at that distance. It's the big stuff. So you're you're making sure that your painting will grab someone's attention from far away when you concentrate on big, interesting shapes and not reliant on just a lot of little broken up things. And it's more, it reads better from a distance when you start connecting all those shapes. The more you break it up in all these little hodgepodge individual spots, it just becomes very visually confusing. What is hard for students about that connecting shapes part? That middle value time, that's when your brain it sees all the objects. That's a constant struggle, and it still is for me, too, to just kind of have the faith that I can let these buildings all read as one big backdrop, and they can fuzz into the car, and that they can fuzz right into the person standing next to the car, and I can get that back later. But that's not a comfortable feeling for most. 
to just kind of lose all that detail early on and just trust the process and trust the fact that at the end of the painting you can get some of that back. So yeah, that's a big challenge because we want to make our painting look like something before before the painting is ready to. It's hard to just say, despite the fact that right now it may be a big flaming mess. Later on, <laughs> when I start adding windows and people and stuff, oh, now it's all of a sudden it's a street scene, you know? Yeah, I think that's the biggest problem is we're fighting our organized brain a lot and our tendency, our natural tendency to want this painting to start looking good early and not trusting the process. Hearing you talk makes me realize you can always add detail later. Mm -hmm. But you can't unadd detail. Right. Yeah, you'd have to come in and scrub things out and try and lift them all out. So, you know, you can always come back in. Even if you want to paint, you know, a lot more tightly, I think it really helps the painting to start, have that loose start underneath and then take it as far as you want to go. You can always keep adding and adding and adding. Not always to the benefit of the painting, obviously, but um, it's hard to know. You get that, that question all the time. When do you know how, when to stop? I'm no expert at that either, but I've ruined plenty of paintings by just keeping on going. And again, especially when you're working from a photo, just because the camera saw it doesn't mean it needs to end up in your painting. That's a big, a big lesson, you know, stepping away from it, making sure. I tell my students a lot of times when I'm finishing off a painting, I'll get it to the, like that 90% stage and then I'll just get rid of the photograph and just look at the painting and judge it on its own merits. Don't judge it based on how much it looks like the photo. And that's when you stop rendering and become a painter because then you're making decisions based on whether or not it actually benefits your work and not whether or not it looks like that photograph. Well, and also that the thing we're seeing is inspiration, not truth. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a jumping off point. I think the goal of the painter is to improve on that scene. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the subjects that I choose. I don't want to choose something that's obviously pretty. I like to find that hidden beauty, you know, that truth underneath all the ugly. Five sentence walkthrough of your process. Yeah, I'll try. <laughs> okay, so um, I find a subject that's first and foremost, very interesting to me. That's the priority number one, something I'm excited about painting. What you choose to paint as important as why. Yeah, that's step number one. And then I could quickly just kind of squint at it and see that big pattern of light and shadow, making sure I'm envisioning that and getting that into a, a value study real quickly. Then I um, quickly draw out the, the scene on my for my color painting. And I wet both sides of the paper, unless I'm working on a block outside, obviously. But if I'm working on a piece of paper, I wet both sides just to make sure that everything is staying you know, loose right from the get-go. And I'm not painting details too early. And I just start knocking in light local color where I see it and where I'm going to need it. And just really trying to stay very wet and wet and loose at that first stage. And then as it's starting to dry, I start knocking in some of the that middle value shape that I found on my value study, start painting the, the objects. I usually start in the distance because if my paper is still damp a little bit, that's where, you know, if it's fuzzing a little bit, I don't mind. And I'll work my way towards the harder, crisper, more important edges as I go. And just kind of keep changing that color on my brush and find connections, connections all the time. And then give it a chance to dry a little bit more. And I start evaluating the scene more along the lines at that point. Now when it comes time to finish it off of making sure that why I chose to paint that is obvious to the viewer, not just obvious to me. So I'm starting to make decisions at that point towards the end of the painting, towards that end, whether it's adding contrast or some brighter colors or whatever, taking off some detail in a different area if I have it too much. I guess that's about it. And then just kind of put it away and look at it again an hour or two later and, and judge it on its own merits and um, see if it needs anything else. Often it doesn't, but a lot of times it might just need a quick brush stroke or, you know, after your washes have dried and lightened, a couple of things might need darkening, but that's basically it. So you don't let it dry. Like you're working wet into wet. A lot. How do you keep those second and third and fourth layers of pigment from just causing havoc? in right. your paint well it's just the experience i mean you can't it has to start drying a, a little bit but there's a lot of shapes that i want to give them their shadow 
you know, anything that's a free form shape, a cloud or a tree or even a round shape, like a silo or something where you need to start dropping in their shadows before it's dry so it stays soft. And you just have to make sure that you're using a lot less water on your brush. You're use, utilizing the moisture of the paper to get your soft edges. So when I'm mixing the colors to keep charging in, a lot of times I'm just sticking my brush almost right into the paint wells, you know, with a mostly dry brush to make sure that when I'm introducing paint at that stage, it's fuzzing because of the wetness of the dampness of the paper and not because I have a lot of water in my washes. You're not getting the blooms and blossoms that way. Even by wetting both sides of the paper, by the time it gets, I keep working wet into wet and in areas where if it's going to be fuzzing more, where I don't worry about it and I just kind of whittle my way towards the more important areas and by that time the paper even if it's still damp it's dry enough where it's not going to fuzz too much but you start generally with more watery mixtures and then as you go you get less watery more pigment thicker paint yep exactly thicker paint all the time and a lot of that is to um looking at trevor chamberlain's paintings my biggest idol and he just really gets some a great combination of soft edges and hard edges and when you look at his paintings you can tell he's even if you have to come in later when it's dry and reinforce the shape initially trying to drop in some of those darker shapes while your paper is wet so that they fuzz and it just gives the whole painting a feeling of life and airiness and movement that you don't get when everything is masked and stiff and dry. That doesn't really interest me. A lot of the landscape is moving. The sky is moving. The trees are moving. The people are moving. And having that little bit of a blurry edge to things really does kind of help reinforce that feeling in your painting. Also, I find it really fascinating, the idea of a painting with a focal point, that focal area... Area of interest. Area of interest. There you go. You'll get it. (laughs) Having a painting with an area of interest that has sharper edges and then letting everything else be less sharp really is how we see. Right. That's the peripheral vision. Yeah. That works. But we really don't think of it that way because we're used to like turning our head and then letting our eyes do their thing. Right. That's the that's the hard part, because every time you're painting something, now you're looking at that, and that comes into full focus. And then you turn, and you're painting that, and that comes into full focus. I read this somewhere. I don't, can't remember. I, I wish I could attribute it to the artist. But somebody said, when you're painting your area of interest, look at the area of interest. When you're painting everything else, look at the area of interest. And it just kind of makes sure you're still you're staying true to that kind of peripheral vision aspect of the scene. Jumping back into how you paint... So let's say you have a a series of barns, trees, barns, and then there's some cows Mm -hmm. in a field. You would paint those trees by dropping in greens, and then you would just keep working wet into wet, dropping in the browns and reds of the barn still Mm -hmm. in that middle value. And then you would go down and drop in the colors of the cows in the field. Like You Mm -hmm. would just move from one to the next to the next in that middle value wash. Exactly. And almost treating it like a contour drawing. That's part of the the contour drawing when you just leave your pencil on the paper. Obviously, you can't leave your brush on the paper. You have to go back to the palette and reload, recharge, or, or change the color. But when I come back, touching that wet edge where I left off as if I was doing a contour drawing, it forces you to find those connections. You can always make separations later, lifting, adding darks, putting in gouache, whatever, but it's hard to find those big connections later on. So I try and do it early on in the process. Does that mean that local color is more important? Is local color then part of what you're using to help the brain know later that that's a barn, that's a cow? Yeah, but I mean, you'd be amazed how often, even on those value studies, when you paint it, and it's just gray, you don't even need the color half the time. I always bring this book with me to my uh, workshops a lot, Skip Lawrence's Painting Light and Shadow and Watercolor. I think that's the title, but um, you think I'd know it by now. But there's so many great examples in there. He's much more of a colorist, but his paintings all work, despite the fact that he rarely uses realistic color because the values and those shapes are right. And then, you you know, you can use whatever color you want. So I still stay true to the colors in the scene. That's that realism aspect of my painting. But the impressionist part comes through and how I handle that and trying to simplify it and, you know, leaving a lot of things out to the viewer's imagination. Why is drawing important in watercolor specifically? Well, it goes back to that whole thing that you can't change much once you've started painting. So, you know, if your shapes are all out of whack, uh, you can't fix it as the painting goes on. You're kind of stuck with what you started out with. You know, I've always been able to draw. But another thing I do, the more I paint, is I, I actually try and draw less. I find that it's important to 
leave some of those shapes for the brush instead of the pencil. Uh, the more you draw, the more your painting becomes a coloring book. It's hard to get out of all those pencil lines. You find yourself trying to stay in all those little shapes too much. So I try and concentrate more on the contours. I do actually do a contour drawing most of the time. I'm just leaving my pencil on the paper and that forces you to stay away from putting in things like windows and siding and you know, steering wheels on cars. You're just getting the outside of those shapes. They're very descriptive by their silhouette. You don't need to put a lot of detail inside it. So I do, I make a conscious effort to try and draw less all the time, get my big shapes down and, and start painting. But, you know, having said that, you also have to have the confidence to make convincing marks with your brush too at that point. You know, too often I think students will switch to a small brush too soon and they're starting to draw almost with a pen <laughs> the way they're making their all their little detail lines and I try and keep telling them, still paint shapes you know even though you're painting details it's still a shape not a line for the most part so you know the drawing is a big part of it obviously I have students who just want to draw and draw and draw and I get it but I try and tell them it's hard to paint fast and loosely if your drawing is so tight that whole process of drawing and getting everything super accurate and coming in with rulers and all this stuff and then what are the odds that you're going to paint loosely when you're starting off with that kind of a mindset at the drawing stage what i find interesting about hearing you talk about your process is that it sounds like but, even for you you still have to find ways to force yourself to be loose that there's still always this instinct yeah. to draw everything you see with a little tiny brush that right. you have created a process that has forced yourself away from that almost. Yeah, that's exactly what it's done. And it, that's one of the big benefits that came out of teaching for myself personally, because I, I thought I knew what I was doing just by looking at values and thinking about them. But the more, as soon as I started to teach value studies and do them for my students, I found myself doing them a lot for myself as well. And now it's become such an important part of my process because I don't know if that ever maybe for some people it gets easier but our brains are so organized and we see detail and we want to put in all that detail it's hard to to break free of that um, I'm assuming I'm speaking for most people obviously there there's exceptions to the rule but um, yeah I don't that's all part of the struggle how to simplify things down and not get sucked into things that don't matter are there generally compositions that you know will work for a landscape scene? Are there some that you go to again and again? I don't think so. I mean, I, I just kind of, no matter what I'm doing, I try and follow that compositional rule of thirds where the little golden rectangles reside and all that stuff. But it depends on how I'm painting it. But if you have a sky where it's the star of the show, you just, you know, you want a very small horizon line or a very low horizon line and make sure you've got this emphasis on the sky. If you've got something with a street scene with buildings and church steeples, you want a low horizon line to have room for it. If you have something with water and interesting reflections, you might want a higher horizon line so you have room to tackle all the reflections. So it kind of depends on what I'm painting, but as far as having some kind of a tried and true composition that works, I haven't really paid that much attention to it, I guess. With someone who's just starting out in painting, how does someone start to get better at composition? Again, that whole rule of thirds. So I you know, have them take that rectangular piece of paper and you divide it into third horizontally and vertically and where those little lines intersect. That's where you kind of want to stay with your area of interest primarily. It's too easy to get things too close to the edge of the paper, too close to the center of the paper that natural inclination if it's important put it in the middle you know and it's not an, an intuitive thing to put it offset somewhere but it sure does help the composition so and then again through the use of your values making sure that you know you might have some lines leading in towards your area of interest as well kind of directing the viewer's eye in but you got to be careful with that stuff too it can become very formulaic and obvious when every painting has a you know an arrow you know, just slang the viewer's eye right up to the barn, you know. You don't always have to have a road going right up to it. But, you know, when you're trying to learn about those kind of things, it, you know, you keep it as simple, even if it's cliched, just to kind of get them thinking along those terms, making sure that some of the directional lines in your painting lead towards that area of interest. How do you create a sense of distance, either in the sky or land? Well, shapes get smaller and cooler and less focused as they recede. It's important when you're looking at skies that clouds become narrower and lighter and they even kind of overlap as they get back. And the sky typically is a lot warmer and deeper blue 
up above you than it is up in the distance. So you got to transition to that from that warmer blue higher up in your painting. And as you're going down to the distant horizon, lighten it up and get to a cooler blue kind of transition from cobalt, even with some violet or something in it to almost it's a cerulean or Payne's gray in the distance with the sky. And that helps that transition. But yeah, cool colors recede warm colors come forward so it's important that when you're working on the landscape too not to introduce too many warm colors way back in the distance or a lot of contrast back there not just the color but that value contrast really makes a difference too in bringing objects forward so that first step in the value study when i'm teaching those things and i pop in that first main dark by my area of interest i always hold that up right away to the students they get, so i'm like look at that now those boats as soon as i put those darks in they're like wow now you see them you know so it's important to remember that because if you, if you start putting all those darks in everywhere, everything has the same importance. How do you paint a sky? Could you walk us through how you paint a sky? Yeah, I, I treat the sky, even though it's all part of my first wash, I kind of treat it as its own little mini value. I keep coming back to the value studies, but uh, I still try and treat it as light, mid, dark of the sky itself. So even if the, obviously the darkest value in the sky isn't really a dark a lot of times. So I'll, I'll wet the whole paper, unless you've got a real crisp edge, like a thunderhead or something that billows up. Most of the time you want the whole sky to be nice and soft and fresh. So I wet the whole area and I start dropping in the, the lighter color for the clouds. And it's important to remember that clouds do have color a lot of times. They have warmth on them. They're water vapor. They're reflecting the sun. But usually for clouds, it's just a very pale raw sienna kind of a touch to it. I'll even drop in a little lavender or something to take the edge off. Whenever I say add warmth to your clouds, I have too many students that like they just pull out like cad lemon and start putting in just yellow in the sky, you know, unless it's at sunset, you're not really going to see that either. So it's just a little bit of warmth in those clouds. And then from there, I go into the the blue of the sky around the clouds is usually the next, you know, the middle part of that uh, wash. So then I start painting the blues and, and leaving gaps for the clouds behind. And then the cloud shadows themselves are usually the last and the, the darker areas. And then I kind of come in and start knocking in the cloud shadows. And again, with a little more paint, a little less water. But by the time I've you know, wet the paper, got the cloud color in, start painting the sky. It's all, it's drying slowly as I go. So by that point, I can kind of drop in a little bit of a shadow on those clouds and, and hope that it stays put and doesn't create too many problems. The nice thing about painting the sky, that's very tricky to work, you know, wet into wet like that, but it's the first thing you do. And if it doesn't turn out, you just throw it away and start over, you know. How does light change over the course of the day, but also over the course of the year? Oh boy, drastically. I mean, that's a really long answer. <laughs> There's you know, um, light in the but it's usually, you know, even as bright as it is, it's usually a little cooler in the morning. So I try and you know, sunrises aren't as warm as some sunsets typically, is what I've found. So uh, maybe it's a Minnesota thing, but our sunrises, I'll, I'll definitely use cooler colors in the sky. You know, to show that, uh, you know, because it's just at the end of and the night is just breaking. And then as the day goes on, especially in the summer, uh, when we've got all that heat and warmth all day and the haziness of the humidity here uh, really affects the sunset, too. So a lot warmer colors and a lot more moody. And I think sunsets are also, unless you have some fog in your sunrise, but sunsets tend to be softer and fuzzier, and whereas sunrises, for whatever reason, um, are a little more bright and crisp. I don't know. I mean, I'm generalizing, obviously. There's uh, exceptions to every rule, but that's just kind of what I've found, to the, how the light changes. Um, you know, now that humidity of the summer just really kind of affects everything when you're when i'm painting in china with all the haziness in the air even if it's just air pollution and humidity or whatever it's just boy the the sun is just like a red ball as it's going down it's amazing how much that affects it um, it gives it a lot of atmosphere and we see not quite to that extent but we definitely see that here you know late july and late august as it's going down so you change the color temperature of the painting but also may make it have softer edges in general mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's that whole thing of trying to establish a mood on a millimeter thick piece of paper. You know, what do you have at your disposal? The edges, the colors, and all that kind of stuff. It's important to try and convince people that they're actually seeing a representation of the world around us. If someone came to you and said, I really want to get good at painting, what advice would you give them? 
work really hard <laughs> and just prepare yourself for how difficult it is. When I first started to paint, this is, I'm dating myself, obviously, Facebook wasn't even around. I mean, it's amazing now what the pressure of social media and what it does to people's mindsets when it comes time to painting, their need for instant gratitude and success and likes and all that stuff and I didn't have any of that when I started to paint like I said it wasn't even doing it as a career choice early on and just kind of really honing my craft and that made a, a big difference and um, if you're not getting all those likes and not getting into shows immediately and getting awards that can be very frustrating when you're on social media and seeing all these other people getting that you really start to the self-doubts creep in and I think a lot of people fail at painting can probably because they just give up too soon. They're not, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. And I mean, I'm maybe halfway there myself. Hopefully if I can, you know, live long enough, I've got a lot of growth and learning to do, but that's all part of the fun of it. So just prepare yourself for that aspect of it. Find some people, you know, initially it's nice to be exposed to a lot of different styles unless you really know how you want to paint, but it's kind of nice to educate yourself on different artists and their approaches and stuff, but then kind of, you know, hone in on that and find a mentor or two or a workshop that somebody, you know, who paints the way you want to paint and make sure you're learning from them, but don't go workshop crazy either. You ask, you have to actually spend time with the brush in your hand and practicing. That's the most vital thing. It's not just taking workshops all the time and getting pulled in all these different directions, just making sure you're practicing a lot. And it's not always about doing paintings either. Another big thing is I tell my students just having scrap paper by your table and for a day, just paint people, you know, Google search crowds of people and print out a few photos and just sit there and paint figures. Don't just paint figures when it comes time to put them in your painting. It's going to take you eight years to get better at painting figures. But if you spend a week, you know, painting little people, little gestural figures on scrap pieces of paper, you're going to get a lot better a lot quicker. And the same goes with everything. Skies, just paint skies for a week. You know, different cloudy skies, you're going to get a lot better. You can find more about artist Andy Evenson, his artwork and his workshops at his website, evensonartsstudio.com and on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find links to everything at the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com. Thank you so much for being with us today, Andy. Thank you, Kelly. It was my pleasure. Happy painting, everyone. Thanks for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 12 for show notes and to find links to Evenson's website, including his workshops. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter. You'll get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. See you in a few weeks. Happy painting.